So over the last couple of weeks, we started a new sermon series, The Last Words of Jesus on the Cross. Uh, we are getting ready for Easter. Can you believe Easter is only six weeks away? Last week, we started um, the series, The Seven Last Words of Jesus. After Jesus was nailed to the cross, he spoke seven short phrases before he died. And in Luke 23, verse 43, what the, the passage we'll look at today is the second of the seven last words of Christ. So Jesus' first saying from the cross was a prayer in which our Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today we are going to see the answer to this prayer that, that Jesus prayed. So, spoiler alert, I'm letting you know in the beginning what happens, okay? The Father answers the prayer, and He generously forgives the thief on the cross. And God's forgiveness was granted to one of the most unlikely of recipients and we will look at that today the title of my sermon this morning is a word the word of assurance the word of assurance so if you would take your bibles please and stand with me we are going to read from luke chapter 23 from verse And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can open your word today. Thank you, Lord, that we have this blessing and this privilege. We pray, Lord, that you help us not to take this for granted today. I'm sure, Lord, this is a very familiar passage to many of us. But please, Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Just as we learned earlier on at our family Bible hour, May we be diligent in our studies. May we be prepared in our hearts to receive your word. And not just to be the hearers, Lord, but to be the doers as well. So please, Lord, we ask that you teach us this morning. May your spirit open our eyes. May he remove the veil and give us understanding into this passage. That we may love you more. That we may adore the gospel more. And that we may praise you better in our, in our daily walk. So we ask for your help today. Please, Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So author Joseph Bailey, he wrote about death from first-hand experience. 
he lost all three of his children. One had 18 days old after surgery. Another died at age five with leukemia. And his third child died at 18 after a sledding accident complicated by hemophilia. As a committed Christian, Joseph Bailey knew that he would see his children in heaven. In fact, he wrote a book, and in his book called The View from a Hearse, he tells what he said to offer hope to a woman who was, um, whose small child had, was, was dying, whose small child was dying. And this is what he said. He said, It is good to know, isn't it? He said slowly, choosing his words with unusual care, that even though the medical outlook is hopeless, we can have hope for our children in such a situation. We can be sure that after our child dies, dies, he'll be removed from sickness and suffering and everything like that and be completely well and happy. And the woman replied, Well, if I could only believe that, but I don't. When he dies, I'll just have to cover him up with dirt and forget I ever had him. And how sad. But more often than not, this woman's words express the, the hopeless plight of, of so many people. And Jesus spoke some last words so we wouldn't have to feel this way. We wouldn't have to feel hopeless about death. And so we would know the truth about death and about dying. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, remember, he's going to die. He's going to suffer a physical death. He is waiting for this to happen. He's waiting to have this unbearable pain relieved. And the Lord Jesus made it plain that, that life does not end at physical death. And after praying for his, his enemies, Jesus turned to a, a thief, a repentant thief on the cross, and assured him that there was something beyond this life as we know it. That there is hope, even in the face of all of these painful experiences. And he told the dying thief that because of his repentance and faith, that he would be in heaven. And as we examine Jesus' second word on the cross from Luke 23, 43, we will learn about the nature of salvation as we see it here um, played out for us in the example of this, this thief on the cross. My first point this morning we see in verse 35 to verse 41, and that is the situation. So we're giving you some context to help you understand why Jesus said what he did. And to fully understand what happened in the conversation between Jesus and the thief, we need to, we need to back up a bit and, and look at the context. That's what we've been looking at over the last month or so. And as we do, the first thing we should note is that the gospel writer tells us that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. Two thieves that day. Before we go any further in our study, we need to understand who they were and why they were being executed in the first place. Well, to do this, we need to look at the Greek a little bit closer, because the word that Matthew uses to describe these men, these thieves, literally means bandit, bandits. Um, it means hoodlums. Okay, when we read thieves or robbers, we think, well, maybe they were just innocent um, robbers who stole a loaf of bread. Well, if you look at the, the original words, it means more than just a, a petty thief. 
They were bandits. They were, they were hoodlums. They were probably members of an organized scheme to overthrow the, the Roman government. In fact, there is good reason to believe that these men were partners in crime with, with Barabbas, the man who was released instead of Jesus. I say this because Mark chapter 15 verse 7 talks about Barabbas having companions when it says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Barabbas. So in other words, these men hanging next to Jesus were not first-time offenders who had made a couple of slight mistakes in life and had unfortunately got caught. They were criminals. They were hardened criminals. They were thugs and possibly murderers. And either of them could easily have been on Jerusalem's most wanted lists. In fact, the deep down bad to the bone wickedness of their character was shown by the fact that they, they both initially used their dying strength to join in taunting Jesus. As the, the drugged wine and mingled with myrrh, which these thieves had also accepted earlier, as it started to wear off, Matthew's gospel just says, like the crowd of mockers who were surrounding the cross, that the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, the word that we translate as insults or abuse literally means blasphemy. So in other words, the two men, they shouted harsh, perhaps even obscene statements at Jesus. In their own dying misery, they directed their curses and their abuses at the Son of God. Jesus was crucified with two criminals that day on either side of him. This was not an oversight. This was not by mistake. In fact, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah had said that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. God had decreed that he who was most holy should die with those who were most unholy. Christian author and pastor Erwin Lutzer, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus not only died among criminals, but was numbered as one of them. And therein lies the heart of the gospel. God had his reasons for decreeing that Jesus should graciously hang, gracelessly hang between two thugs. He wanted to demonstrate the depths of shame to which his son was willing to descend. At his birth, Jesus was surrounded by beasts, and now in his death by criminals. Well, some people accuse Jesus of being impersonal, don't they? They accuse Jesus of being distant from us. I heard someone say once during COVID, they said, Where is God? Where is God when all of this is happening? Why is God letting me suffer? Where is He in my suffering? God doesn't understand how I feel or how I suffered. And that's why we study the Scriptures, isn't it, folks? To learn about the nature of Christ, to learn about the life of Christ, to learn about the nature of God. And Christ suffered more than you and I could ever imagine. He suffered more than any of us did during COVID, I can assure you of that. And God has not 
strayed away from the brokenness of our fallen world. By no means. In fact, He has descended to the depths so that we might ascend with Him to newness of life. He has come down to lift us up. Verse 39 says that one of the thieves continued his insults by saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And when he said this, Jesus was silent. He gave no comeback reply, as Isaiah had also prophesied. Isaiah said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was silent. Jesus didn't answer the the taunting questions that these criminals had sarcastically posed at him. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now something is changing here in in this narrative. The other criminal is now rebuking his other compatriots on the other side of Jesus. Luke says here, the other did, the other answered. Now in the Greek text, the word other literally means the other of a different kind. So this tells us that originally this man was, he was part of these insults. He was hurling these abuses along with the partner at Jesus. He was the same as them at one point. But now something has changed. Something is changing in this one criminal. He was becoming different, and we know he was because he speaks to his compatriot. He says, what's the matter with you? Don't you even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Don't you realize that we're getting what we deserve? But this man is innocent. How can you hurl these insults at him? In other words, there's there's a point here in this thief's taunting it's turning him to silence. It's turning him to silence. And then the silence is turning to awareness. And then the awareness is turning to conviction. And as we will see, this conviction leads to his repentance. And as he watched Jesus suffering all that abuse so patiently on the cross, never reviling or insulting his tormentors, this thief began to see that the man in the center was indeed who he had claimed to be. And when he did, the thief turned to our Lord and he said the most important sentence of his life, which leads to my second point. Look at verse 42. Here we see the request. But notice there in your Bibles in verse 42, the thief says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The dying thief asked Jesus to remember him. The thief had been caught for the crime of theft, and he was being punished justly for his his sin. We know at first he joins with the others. He joins with the Jews. He joins with the Romans. He joins with the other thief in mocking Jesus. And after, after all, the whole world, it seemed, had, had turned against Jesus. And he who proclaimed to be the Savior of the world hardly seemed to be the Savior of anything in this 
present circumstance. This is a marvelous request, isn't it? It is a request offered in humility. It is a request offered in simplicity. And he recognized that he was a sinner. But now he also recognized that Jesus was indeed the true Savior. He asked Christ to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And I want to point out again that the Greek here is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense in Greek was used to to indicate repeated actions, repeated actions. So this thief's request has been made more than once to Jesus. It wasn't just a, a short little sentence that he had made. As he saw Jesus' life and his own ebbing away, he prayed, remember me, Lord, remember me, Lord, remember me. And Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I also want you to notice that this was not a plea for for relief. This wasn't a a plea for release. Lord, get me down off, off this cross. Lord, take away this pain. This isn't what he's praying for. Nor was it a request for a position or for for power. This repentant criminal wanted to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. He realized he was going to die and he was willing to die for the crimes that he had committed. He understood who he was. He didn't want to be released. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be remembered. His request was a plea for mercy because he knew that he did not deserve it. He knew he did not deserve it. It was much like the prayer of the publican that we we studied in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18 verse 13, it tells us that this publican who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And notice the sinner who, in the midst of many things wrong in his life, he says, not if you have a kingdom, if you have a kingdom. He says, but when, when you enter your kingdom. This is a statement of faith. This is a statement of belief. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me. Friends, we are like that dying thief. I hope you see a part of you in that dying thief. We were under the just condemnation of the law. We had sinned against God and His perfect law. Perhaps we had even mocked God at some point. We had mocked Christ. We had no faith. We were rebels against God. And His holiness. We were not interested in God or the things of God. But then, by a miracle of God's grace, our hearts were changed. And we realized that the one who was crucified was none other than the Lord of glory. And we cried out in words similar to the words of this dying thief. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think of that for a moment. Think of this. This thief believed 
when Jesus' followers did not believe. He believed before the darkness miraculously settled over Jerusalem, before the earthquake and before the veil that tore the temple in two. He believed without the evidence of the, the resurrection. He believed without the evidence of the ascension, without having seen Jesus walking on water, without having seen Jesus feed the multitudes or turn water into wine. He didn't mix with those circles. He was a thief. He was a criminal. He believed in spite of the crowd of onlookers who did not. I mean, he definitely went against the flow of popular opinion that day. And God's Holy Spirit was at work in this hardened criminal, this career criminal. His heart was changing. The humility that he never had before was suddenly there. God's Holy Spirit started to convict him. And the thief responded. How? By believing. By believing. And when he did, he made his all-important request. And Jesus responded with his second saying from the cross. Look at my third point. Here we see the response of Jesus in verse 43. Look at verse 43. Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that Jesus gave the thief far more than what he had actually asked for. Not only would he be remembered, Jesus promised the thief that he would be with him in paradise. Today, not tomorrow or the next day. And paradise is simply another word for heaven here. And this thief who had lived a life of sin, who had rebelled, was now going to spend eternity in heaven because of his trust in Jesus Christ. And more than just being in paradise, Jesus said to the thief, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. This promise is not only heaven, folks, but it is in the presence of Jesus himself. Now, I heard a preacher once say, everybody wants to go to heaven but not everybody wants Jesus. Everybody wants the glory of heaven, the comfort of heaven, the pleasures of heaven, but not everybody wants Jesus. This thief wanted to be with Jesus. This thief deserved hell because of his, his sin. But now he was going to be with Jesus in heaven. What unspeakable joy! In answer to this thief's request, remember me, Lord, when you go to your kingdom. The thief was going to be with Jesus that very day. And notice there was no purgatory there that was mentioned. There was no sleeping in limbo for who knows how long. The thief who had no opportunity even for, for any good works, what happened? He went straight to paradise. To be with Jesus for all eternity the moment he died. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote that this man 
who was our Lord's last companion on earth, was his first companion at the gates of paradise. What a wonderful thought, isn't it? Now, friends, Christ's response is the same to us as it was to that dying thief on the cross. When we trust in Christ as the Savior sent from God, we immediately receive the promise of an eternity in paradise with Jesus. I hope that's why you want to go to heaven, folks, to be with Jesus, right? To be with Him forever and ever. Not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but to be with Jesus, right? We know that there is no such thing as purgatory or limbo. All of us who trust in Christ will immediately be transported into the presence of Christ in paradise the moment we die. And folks, here's the bad news. We are all going to die. We will all die. But what great hope do we have if our faith is in Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. What great hope we have. We can learn so much from this testimony of this thief on the cross. So much about his faith. There's one thing I want to point out today. I want to emphasize just one main truth. When we come to Jesus asking His forgiveness, when we decide to put our faith in Christ to become Christians, the, Bible's tell, the Bible tells us we are justified. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Alone. I mean, this criminal hanging alongside Jesus was not ushered into paradise on the basis of anything that he had achieved. He had achieved nothing. His hands were nailed to the cross. He didn't even get baptized, folks. Nothing. He didn't become a member of a church. He didn't go through catechism classes. He was stuck on the cross. He achieved nothing. It was his faith in God's grace that opened the door and invited him in. I'm pretty sure that if he had survived the cross, he would have become a member of a church, okay? I'm not saying membership's not important, okay? Baptism's not important. I'm not saying that. Please don't misquote me. It was his faith in God's grace that opened the door and invited him in. Jesus heard his request and granted him eternal life, something the thief did nothing to deserve, nothing to earn. He didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have to perform six months of good works in order to earn heaven. He didn't even have to pass a week probation period where he would prove himself worthy of the gift of eternal life. He was accepted into God's kingdom on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. Another author, A.W. Pink, he writes... The thief could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life, for he was dying. This is just another reminder that we're not saved by what we do. We are saved by our faith in what Christ has done, in what Christ has done for us in what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. We don't bring 
something in our hand when we come to Jesus? Why don't we bring our good works to Jesus to help pave our way to heaven? Somebody asked me that. Why can't we? Why can't we bring the good things that we've done in the past? Well, Isaiah 64 says it very clearly. He says, even our best deeds, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If you go back into the Hebrew, that filthy rags is describing a menstrual cloth that women would, would wear during their menstrual periods. That's how our good works are seen by God before we have any faith in Christ. Dirty. We have nothing that God wants. There's no good thing that we can do before faith in Christ that will be accepted by our glorious Holy Father. Before we had faith in Christ, we were helpless sinners. Even the best things we bring to God are polluted by our, by our thoughts, our sinful thoughts, by our sinful attitudes. The main truth that we should glean from the cross is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Scripture tells us, Ephesians 2 verse 8, not by our works so that we cannot boast. And we would boast, folks. We would boast, given a chance. You know, this is a truth that our culture seems to have a hard time embracing. I mean, everywhere you look these days, you find religious leaders advocating works-based religion. Live a good enough life, they say, and when you die, you will enter paradise. You know, not too long after 9-11, I was channel surfing and I came across the Larry King show. And his show that night included a panel of religious leaders discussing the Muslim faith. And there was a female Muslim cleric. There was a liberal Roman Catholic priest. There was a Jewish rabbi. And there was a Christian pastor by the name of Max Lucado. And while the discussion finally came down to the issue of, of works versus faith. And these religious leaders were discussing and they, they were debating, what is it that gets us into heaven? And the Muslims said it was works. Follow the five pillars and you'll get to heaven. Inshallah, God willing. The Jewish rabbi said the same thing. Even the Roman Catholic priest said, look, as long as you live a good life, as long as you do good things, then no matter what faith you embrace, no matter what religion you practice, you are on the same train bound for heaven. End of quote. It was at this point that the Christian pastor, Max Lucado, he wisely pointed to the fallacy of this way of thinking. He said, I believe the Bible teaches that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, not by our works. And by the way, I want to point out that it was a works-based salvation philosophy that led those fanatics to fly their planes into the Twin Towers. Their faith in works told them that if they did this, they would be assured of paradise. We cannot trust our works, folks. They are tainted by sin. If we want to go to heaven, we have to trust the work of Jesus Christ alone. 
We cannot earn our way into heaven. And the experience of this thief shows us this text points to this truth. We are saved not by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We come now to remind ourselves of this foundational truth that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the only one able to do so, died on the cross in our place. He took our sin and He took our punishment on Himself that day. Isn't it amazing that Jesus' last words about salvation were spoken to a wretched criminal dying on a cross? Now, one might almost have expected Jesus to say, well, today you will be with me in paradise to one of the apostles, isn't it? Or to one of the great saints. But he didn't speak those words to any of them. He spoke those words, this promise of salvation, to a wretched sinner. What marvelous condescension on the part of our Lord. The Lord of glory did not take a great saint with him into paradise, but a lowly criminal. A lowly criminal. Why? I think because this criminal is a sample of all the rest. He's a sample of all of us. It seems as if Jesus was saying to all the to all the angelic hosts who are just watching this, scratching their heads, confused by grace. Look who I'm bringing to heaven. I'm escorting a sinner with me into paradise today. He is a sample of all the rest. There was a popular song called Tie a Yellow Ribbon. It tells of a man who's been sent to prison he served his time and he's now coming home on, on a bus. And he admits that she who once loved him has every right to reject him. He's to blame. So he's written to tell her that if she forgives him, she should tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. If there is no yellow ribbon, he'll just go riding by on the bus. And as the miles roll by... All the man thinks about is that old oak tree. Will it have a yellow ribbon on it? And as the bus approaches the oak tree, the man sees not one, but he sees a hundred yellow ribbons tied on the old oak tree. Like the man on the bus, many are fearful of death and what's ahead. And we know our hearts. We know our failures. And we wonder if God will really forgive us and welcome us into heaven. The good news of the gospel is that He will. There's a yellow ribbon tied around the cross of Calvary, folks. Not one, but a hundred. The Lord of glory does not take saints with Him into paradise, but lowly sinners who recognize their need for a Savior. And when we, like the thief on the cross, turn to Christ for salvation, God will welcome us into heaven. I hope that today, if you're not a Christian, if you've never personally reached out to Jesus as that thief did, well, I hope today is the day of your salvation. I hope and pray that you've come to see that not only did Jesus die for you, 
but that you needed him to. You pray with me? Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending your son, the perfect son of God, the perfect lamb without any sin, who die for sinners like us. How amazing, Lord, is your grace. How amazing, Father, is your salvation. Lord, help us meditate on this this week, Lord, we pray. Help us live in light of the glorious gospel that has saved us from the chains of sin. Help us to live in light of the glorious light that you have taken us into, away from the darkness, Lord. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to shine the light of this hope that is needed in this world that is under this curse of sin. Father, may we make much of you as you did for us on that cross of Calvary. So Father, I pray if there's someone today that needs to be saved, that you would save them, Lord. Grant them the faith they need. Grant them the repentance they need. And may they call upon the name of Jesus. May their faith be in you, what you have accomplished for them on the cross of Calvary. Please, Lord, save the lost today. For your glory, Lord, and for our joy, we will rejoice as the angels rejoice, Lord. For your great salvation, Lord. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.